Now, as I mentioned, this is completely rewritten. This is a completely different beginning from the Westminster Confession. So I want to ask you, I want you all to put your detective hats on and say, why does the confession begin the chapter this way? What possibly is one of the reasons it begins it that way? Yes, Sam. So Sam's saying, hey, what about our individuals who lived a life, sometimes a really terrible life? Maybe they were really terrible people and they had really great sins, and then they were converted. Was it true conversion? Or do their prior sins kind of disqualify them, right? So absolutely, Sam, that's right on point. As we think about this first paragraph in the section, it's got a pastoral tone. It's saying, hey, we know that you guys all have unbelieving relatives, unbelieving friends, um, who are possibly, you might think, oh, how could God save them? They are, they are so um, you know, sinful, they are so against God, um, and yet, how can God save them? Well, it connects their salvation to God's effectual calling. If God effectually calls that non-believing, sinful relative that you may have, that you pray for, then they will repent, right? It's not within their power alone. It is the Holy Spirit working in them. And so, as we think about this uh, section, it's got that pastoral bend to say, look, we know that you guys have unbelieving friends and relatives in deep sin, and yet we can't separate that from the effectual call of God, that if you preach repentance and we'll talk about that later, the importance of preaching repentance, that the effectual call of God will save them, will bring them to their knees in humility. So that's one reason. Um, And this is where we get to the debate of, do infants need to repent? And before that, I'm sorry, I forgot, Titus 3, 3 through 6 is kind of our proof text for talking about how a person can be sinful and then repent and be saved completely. Paul says in Titus, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So Paul is bringing it back to remind us that, hey, before you were saved, before you were converted, you were pretty bad yourself. Don't forget that. right? Um, And so never, ever think that someone is beyond the call of God and the Holy Spirit working on their hearts, even though it can be easy to think that. So now we get to 
the error that the Savoy Congregationalists and the Baptists were trying to correct when they were writing this section and rewriting it from the Westminster. So it's a, it's a little bit of a technical um, dilemma. You might think, why on earth are we debating this? Um, but it's, the question is, must infants repent? So this is why they bring up that strange phrase, riper years. And that's why I had to assault your eyes with the ripe bananas. So it says, riper years was meant to distinguish between infants and older adults who had committed actual sins. Infants are comparatively innocent. So this gets a little tricky. So there were uh, Arminians in that day who were saying they were charging the uh, Congregationalists, the Reformed Baptists, that, hey, you guys are condemning all infants and really all children to hell because they can't repent, right? If a baby is crying, right, we, don't even, we can't even say if that child crying is necessarily a sin or not, but certainly that baby is not going to repent. They're not going to understand their sinfulness, right? So are the Reformed individuals, by saying everyone must, must repent, they must have uh, faith and assent in, in Scripture and in God and in Christ Jesus and what He's done for them, are we then saying they're all in hell? And the Reformed uh, Presbyterians and Baptists were saying, certainly not. We are not saying that. And so that's why they did distinguish between uh, individuals, infants or young children, who were comparatively innocent, who did not commit actual sins. And this is not to say that, okay... They didn't commit actual sin, so therefore they didn't have original sin. But it was saying that, look, God can come in and save those infants if they are elect and he so chooses. And so that's why we get, um, I got ahead of myself here. Uh, chapter 10, verse 3, or chapter 10, section 3 on effectual calling says, Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit. So the Reformed Presbyterian and Baptists wanted to say, hey, we're not getting rid of original sin, right? John Owen was clear along with other writers. Infants are equally guilty with sinners of discretion in respect to their natural state and condition. So if you remember, Arminians didn't believe in original sin. They believed that we were born innocent. And so the Reformed Baptists wanted to say, hey, we still believe in original sin. Um, that all men and women are brought forth in iniquity. Yet, um, Benjamin Keach says, that all these dying infants who are saved, God doth in some way or another, and we're looking on the second half of this quote, which is not known to us, sanctifying them. For no unclean thing can enter into the heavenly Jerusalem. See our confession of faith. So he points to our confession of faith, and he says, look, God can work out of extraordinary ways. He doesn't have to just work in the ordinary ways of faith and repentance. And he can do this for infants. He can do this for children. He can do this for mentally handicapped. Um, that there are extraordinary ways of salvation. And I figure there's going to be some questions on this. It's, uh, it's not necessarily an easy thing to teach. Are there any questions pertaining to this idea, or did Chandler answer everything when he taught on chapter 10? Yes, Cameron. Yeah, 
Yeah, so they, they don't talk about it in this section, so they don't have that phrase, riper years. I believe it starts out, um, let me see if I can find it. The, the Westminster says, repentance unto life in section one is an evangelical grace, a doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, as well as that of faith in Christ. So they don't approach it in the first section. Um, and to be frank, right, even in this section one, it's not explicit. They don't mention the word infants, but they are distinguishing between those of older years who have committed um, diverse pleasures they've served themselves. And so they're sort of distinguishing between them and infants and children. Now, there is some mystery here because we're not, there, there wasn't a, we have some hints, right, with Benjamin Keach saying, hey, look at our confession. We're not condemning all infants to hell. Um, but there isn't necessarily a, at least in this section, there isn't a specific statement that says um, exactly that. Besides in chapter 10, section 3, that says elect infants are regenerated. Clear as mud? And, and, you know, what's understood with that is we don't know who's elected and who's not, you know, even with people, but especially with infants, for sure. Yeah, I, I've dealt with this um, in my family. I have a brother whose son was still born and impressed with this. Uh, and we really had to come back on it. It's not looking for that phrase or something that gives us comfort. Yep, and Ken, you're absolutely right. Looking to God is the power to save and regenerate us, not in our own doing. And so I think that's where they were trying to distinguish between us and the Arminians. The Arminians were saying it's all within our power to repent and all within our power to have faith. And the Reformed were saying, no, it is God's work in us. And that's why we can say he can save infants. He can save who, who can't physically repent Right? He can save them because it is always within God's power and not ours. Um, so that's the distinguishing. That, that's why they rewrote, that's why we think we rewrote, they rewrote this section, is to respond to that claim by the Arminians. So, yes, Luke? Repentance is a necessary condition for salvation, right? Yes. Okay, so, 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 so it, it only becomes a condition when they become They would say that repentance, obviously a child, a baby, is not going to repent. And so they would say that if we make repentance a necessary condition for infants, then we are condemning them. And so the Reformed Baptists were saying repentance is not a necessary condition for infants. But it is for all, it is the ordinary way that God saves everybody else. It's through faith and repentance and through the ministry of the word. Yes, Jill? Yeah, so Jill asked, is this 
sort of the age of accountability. And for the Arminians it was, because the Arminians were saying, look, infants and children are innocent, and that when they start you know, being cognizant of their sin, then all of a sudden they aren't innocent, and that's when they need to repent. And so when an individual is regenerated, they are brought back to that innocence of their childhood, right? And you can see this even in the Catholic doctrine of baptism, washing away original sin. There's this reverting to um, their childhood innocence. And so the Reformed were trying to make sure that we're not going back to innocence, right? No man is innocent. We are all stained with sin from our birth. And yet, God can still regenerate and save even without the outward means of repentance. Alrighty. Let's move along because I don't want you to think, alright, this section is all about infants and, and children um, dying in infancy, right? This, this section is about more than that. It's really teaching on the role of repentance in the Christian's life. Um, so, section number two, the necessity and the grounds of repentance. The confession reads, Whereas there is none that does good and does not sin, and the best of men may, through the power and deceitfulness of the corruption dwelling in them, with the prevalence of temptation, fall into great sins and provocations. God has, in the covenant of grace, mercifully provided that believers so sinning and falling be renewed through repentance unto salvation. So my question to you is, what error is this paragraph refuting? If you look back, what would, what would be the error that some people might make when thinking about the Christian life? Kim, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, refutes the point you lose your salvation. Okay, so Kim's saying it refutes the fact that we can lose our salvation. That's good. Sam? Yep, so Sam is pointing out it refutes antinomianism, which is essentially the, the belief that the law doesn't have any hold on us and that we can live however we want. Um, Cody, go ahead. Uh, the idea that repentance is just um, you know, something for the unbeliever, something that gets us in, but not something that is, I guess paragraph is applying repentance to believers, so sinning and falling be renewed for Yep, Cody's bringing out this, this is not, repentance is not just for non-believers, right? What we talked about in that first slide where people come out with the, the billboards or the, the holding the signs that repent or burn, right? That repentance is continually a part of the Christian life. Yeah, all correct answers, I would say. There's definitely, um, like Ken was talking about, there's a sense where the covenant of grace secures believers, Right? That we can't leave, when God has called us into salvation, that we can't just leave that on our own accord, right? And there's the side where Sam was talking about with antinomianism, both sides of that, right? Where we can't just live however we want, we need to repent, we can't uh, forsake repentance. Um, and yet we also can't be perfect. That's, that's a huge distinction, right? We see Sam Mountain. There is the headquarters of, or not the headquarters, but the beginning of the holiness churches. Christian perfectionism. 
where once you become a Christian, you should be perfect, right? Even, again, many different types of denominations teach some sort of Christian perfectionism, where Catholic doctrine, you can wash away original sin. So there's some perfectionism in that. And yet, our confession wants to distinguish and say, look, if you, even if you're a Christian, you are going to sin. And not only are you going to sin, you might fall into great sins and provocations. We're not talking about little sins. We're talking about you might have great sins. But what distinguishes a Christian from a non-Christian is that they will always come back to repent. They will always fall back to repentance. So the covenant of grace assures repentance. So this is getting at the... Um, Perseverance of the saints, assurance of salvation. It's a preview to perseverance in chapter seven, um, 17. It literally says the same thing. Believers may fall into grievous sins. They may um, fall into great sins, and yet that covenant of grace secures them. They will come back to repentance. We think of the apostle Peter, even after denying Christ, which he was three times, not just once, three times, his, uh, he was restored, and there's no mention of his losing his salvation. So if you guys want to turn with me to Luke chapter 22, let's look at this, because Jesus says some pretty striking comments here. Luke 22, verses 31-32. Maybe I can get a volunteer to read. Yes, the Nile. Gold star. What a um, unbelievable statement on what Christ does for us. Not only to Peter then, but what he continues to do for us, right? We talked about Christ as mediator continually interceding for us, and this is what he does. Satan asks for all of our souls, right? Satan desires to come after us and steal us away. And yet, um, Jesus says here, Jesus himself prays for us that our faith may not fail. I don't think... Jesus' prayer is going to fail, right? And so therefore, I don't think our faith is going to fail. And so this is where the covenant of grace, the agreement between, um, or the covenant of redemption, the agreement between Jesus and his Father, that he will give him a people um, to, to hold and possess and bring to glorification, that that promise is going to bring true for all of us who confess Christ. And so... This assures us, this passage, and even going into chapter 17 on perseverance, that those who repent of their sins will be assured and saved. Right? Um, There's no losing our salvation. And repentance is one of the tools, you could say, to making sure that doesn't happen. Right? When you're counseling someone and and they've just committed a sin, um, sometimes a grievous sin, right? You say, well... Do you, are you sorrowful or, or over your sin? And will you repent of your sin? And if they say yes, then you say, well, I, I have no reason to condemn you then because Christ doesn't condemn you. Um, so you can give people great assurance for their own salvation.
We think of, uh, we're kind of getting into section or paragraph number three, but the difference between salvific, faithful repentance, turning away from sin to God, right? It's not just turning away from something. That's guilt, that we just feel sorrowful over our actions and really the results of our sin, right? Sin has results, and so if we just feel guilty over the results of that sin, that's not true repentance. True repentance is pointing towards Christ, is saying, oh, I'm now looking towards Christ as the propitiation for my sins. And ultimately, I said this before, your salvation is held in God's power, not your own. So that's what this paragraph reminds us. That, again, um, talking about the Reformed understanding of God's decree and election is that it's His power working in us. Yes, we have responses. And we have, like the Reformed would say, we have a free will to respond. Um, But it is ultimately God's decree and... um, Understanding that we will be saved if he calls us. Any questions on that section? Yes, Melanie. I think if you truly know yourself and you know your weakness, you will turn to Absolutely. Melanie's pointing out that if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that right, we can't be perfect. Um, and perhaps we're not even going to repent for all the sins that we know of. right? Luther tried that and drove himself crazy. And we actually have a Latin scholar here with us, Ken Brinkley, who's going to... What was it? Tutissimum est? Uh, yes. Am I saying that right? Tutissimum est. Right? That it is very safe, and this is a Catholic... Um, after he's basically berated the Protestant understanding of justification. And then at the very end he says, yeah, but it's very safe to trust in Christ for your salvation. So he basically admits that, like, yeah, at the end of the day, it's, that's probably a safe bet, um, in his words. So, absolutely. Well, moving on to chapter, sec, paragraph, I never, section, paragraph number, section 15, paragraph number 3. So there's five total. I've titled this one, God Takes Center Stage in Our Repentance. Their confession writes, This saving repentance is an evangelical grace, whereby a person, being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of all the manifold evils of his sin, does, by faith in Christ, humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrence, praying for pardon and strength of grace, with a purpose and an endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing things. So we could say from this paragraph that God is the chief worker in our repentance. And we see this, right? Repentance is an evangelical grace. It's a gift to us. Uh, it's, we're made sensible of sin by the Holy Spirit. It's not just us thinking that. Um, We are humbled by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ works faith, and I'm sure Chandler uh, got at this last Sunday, right? That faith is not just in us, right? It is worked in us by the Holy Spirit, by God himself. So we're humbled by it. And then there's a purpose and endeavor that's not supplied by us. It's supplied by the Holy Spirit. So without regeneration, without the work of the Holy Spirit, we won't repent. We won't. 
Um, and again, it's, it's the, the easiest way to discern whether or not someone is a Christian, is to say, are they generally repentant? Right? That's why we have uh, church membership and church discipline, to call people to repentance. And if they don't repent of what the church uh, sees as a sin back through Scripture, then we can say, you are a non-believer, right? Because believers will repent when shown their sin. So God is the chief worker in repentance. That's what we see here in this paragraph. And we also see again, the confession continues focusing on believers. It's not simply unbelievers that need to be called to repentance. We think about, and and we're not saying, right, that unbelievers don't need to be called to repentance, right? We're going to see that in the next chapter, that it is every man's duty to repent, so we're not going to go full-on hyper-Calvinism, right? Where we, we save, we, we don't freely offer the, the gift of the gospel. We don't freely offer the message of the gospel, right? No, we freely offer it to everyone. We preach repentance to everyone. But we understand that only the, those with faith in Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit, are going to truly repent. Any questions on that section? All right, moving right along, we've got about six minutes left. Paragraph number four, pop quiz. Who's our fine fellow on the screen? There we go, Luther. Yes, Martin Luther. So we're going to hear a little bit from Martin Luther in a second. This says, this paragraph says, As repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives upon the account of the body of death and the motions thereof, so it is every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins. Particularly. Say that five times fast. So, talking with Cody about this section, he brought up, you know, Luther's first three theses, and really his first one, are all dealing with repentance. So again, repentance is given one chapter in our confession, and it's mentioned other times. But Luther thought repentance was this important that he put it as number one on his 95 thesis that he, that he was telling the Catholic Church about, the Roman Catholic Church. He says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So that's, if we recognize, right, that's the same thing that's said here in paragraph four. Repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives. So as we're talking about this theme, that repentance is not just a one-time thing for non-believers. It is a grace, it's a gift from God that should be utilized throughout our whole lives. Right? Repentance always brings us back to the knowledge that Christ will forgive us, that God will forgive us. He also says, The word cannot be understood in referring to the sacrament of penance, that is confession and satisfaction, as administered by the clergy. Yet it does not mean solely inner repentance, such inner repentance is worthless, unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. So what was the issue with penance, with the Roman Catholic understanding of penance? Does anyone want to take a gander at that? What was the issue with it that Luther is addressing? And Melanie, I knew, would be itching to answer this one. And then you are, as you are given absolution, 
Absolutely. So uh, Melanie's pointing out that you had to go and do this act of penance, which was say, and it was the distinction, right, was only in the Roman Catholic Church you could get this penance. There were other ways that you could get penance. You could pay for it, right? They had indulgences. Um, It became this basically uh, a tool that the Roman Catholic Church used to keep its members in check. Uh, basically, like only you only receive forgiveness through our church through the mediation of a priest. And we know that Scripture is clear that Christ is our mediator. He's the only intercessor between us and God. Right? So we don't need to receive penance, absolution from a priest. So that was, that was definitely one thing that was wrong with penance. The other thing that was wrong with it was it was all outward. Right? There really wasn't a focus on the inward. It was very outward focused. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You've got to say this. Right? Whereas we see in Scripture that repentance is inward. It's a turning from the heart. Or in the heart. Right? That's not to say there's no outward signs of repentance. Right? There is a mortification of the flesh that Luther brings out or that our confession brings out. But that ultimately it, it begins inwardly. It's a work of the Spirit in our hearts. And so Luther thought that it was so important that we get repentance right that he nailed it as the first theses, the first three theses on his, uh, on the door at Wittenberg. Um, so, and the Catholic Church is not the only church, right, that sort of abuses the understanding of repentance, right? I already mentioned that in evangelical spaces and most, you know, big churches, there really isn't any mention of repentance. There's no... Uh, there's no speaking of the law. There's no corporate confession. They rarely do communion, which obviously involves, hey, if you're taking eating of the body of Christ, you need to repent beforehand and examine yourselves. So we see those two extremes where we use repentance as more like a penance thing, where we hold it as a baton over your head to keep you in check. And then we also see on the other side where we don't even talk about repentance. It's not even that important. Any questions in regard to Luther in that section? All righty. We're on to our last one. You can see my lovely meme up there in the left-hand corner. How you look when trying to hide sin from God. All right, the result of repentance. Such is the provision which God has made through Christ in the covenant of grace for the preservation of believers unto salvation, that although there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, yet there is no sin so great that it shall bring damnation to them that repent, which makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. So I ask again, what would be the error that the confession is trying to uh, oppose in this paragraph? What would be the error? Go ahead, Luke. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Okay, hypocrisy could be it. So, saying something but doing something else? Yeah? Yes? Yes. So, and remind me, which name? Pam. All right, so Pam's pointing out, okay, and again, we always, we love 
talking about the Catholics here, but that's why we wrote the Confession in the first place, right? Um, is that there was a difference between venial sins and mortal sins, right? Venial sins were little itty-bitty sins that didn't really matter, right? They couldn't necessarily condemn you, right? They couldn't, I guess they couldn't even get rid of your original sin from baptism. Um, so things like, I don't know, maybe, uh, it would be inward, heartfelt things like, oh, I, I coveted after my neighbor's um, cute puppy or something like that. But uh, it's a venial sin. It's not I didn't actually go steal the puppy. So as long as I didn't steal the puppy, I'm fine. But the mortal sins would be things like adultery or murder or probably stealing and theft where it's physical, right? So we see even the outward understanding that, you know, as long as, it's, as, long as what you do is not outward, you're fine. Um, so yeah, absolutely, right? This paragraph in the confession says, no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. So even our smallest sins before a holy God condemn us. And yet, there is no sin so great that it shall bring damnation to them that repent. So I mean, man, talk about bringing home the importance and the gift of repentance. It's that there is no sin that you cannot repent of. I mean, that's, that's unbelievable. That in, within the covenant of grace, within the plans and purposes of God, there is no sin that you can commit that you cannot repent of and that Christ's blood cannot um, pardon for. I mean, that's huge. That's, again, yes, it's bad news that all sin condemns you, but that just shines brighter, or it makes the gospel shine brighter when you see, but there's no greater... There's no great sin that you can't repent of. So that's why in our... Yes, Eileen. Yes, the unpardonable sin. Um, so that would be a sin that would be characterized, at least how I would understand a lot of folks would understand it, um, would be characterized by persevering in that sin. So even Peter denied Christ, which we would say, wow, that's a pretty blatant sin, right? And yet he's, there, there isn't any talk that he's lost his salvation and that he's like won it back, right? Um, so I think when you talk about the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, it's, it's a persevering sin. Someone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit is not one that just does it once and they can't confess of it. It's someone who perseveres in that blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. But that's a very, very difficult subject for sure. Yes, Jill? Isn't the ultimate blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, though, when someone dies in their sins, and they can't forgive themselves? So it's not necessarily a hardcore sin, but someone that's going to be sincere? So someone who dies in their sins? Yeah, I think you could say something like that. Like, it's someone who perseveres thinking that they can save themselves exactly until the very end. So it's not, there are, you know, there are blasphemers who can repent of that and be saved, absolutely. So we don't want to say that. So I don't think, it's a very difficult passage, but I, I would understand it as like it's a persevering sin. They blasphemed the Holy Spirit and they um, did not trust in Christ to the very end. Yep. Yes, Jason. So I remember I had a roommate as a young single in Atlanta that he seemed very devout in faith, but... So my question is like you see continual 
attorney's book. And he finally had a counsel that recommended medication to kind of like numb him out. That wasn't really addressing anything. And as long as I knew him, this was the constant thing that was just a burden on him. So how do you counsel someone like that that's like, there seems to be genuine repentance, there's never victory, but none of us have arrived either. But he's stuck in this cycle where he just can't shake it. But he's not taking it lightly either. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. I definitely think that's where the role of the church comes in. Um, if someone is in a sin that they continue to do, and I mean, you know, to be honest, when we look at the Ten Commandments, and we can say, all right, I've checked off a few of these, I'm not going to do these ever again. I don't know about that, right? Down the road, you're going to come back to the same sins. And so, I think you do have to distinguish between just guilt over the results of that sin and uh, a true trusting in Christ that he will forgive um, or that God will forgive through Christ's blood, right? So that's what you're checking for is like, is there a descent to, yes, I know I keep struggling with this, but I know that I'm going to win because Christ has won. And so that might distinguish between, it's not, it's not like an easy black and white in well, the church Yeah, and definitely, you know, depending on the sin, that's, you know, where the church discipline would come into, where you you might distinguish between, hey, I think you're, I think you don't like your sin, you're a little guilty over it, but I don't, I don't see a, a full-on, like, I hate this thing, and I'm ready to do battle with it, I'm ready to sacrifice for it. But again, it's, it's a pastoral issue that's not black and white and very difficult to work through, for sure. Um, we have to conclude, so I'll just finish by saying that you know how we can be thankful that in our church we have multiple avenues to showcase repentance in the Christian life. We have the avenue of speaking the law, right? Yeah, it's not fun. Some, some of those passages are really difficult where we see ourselves being brought low, um, but it leads to that corporate confession, that corporate repentance, that we as the body of Christ repent and then uh, our pastor gives us that absolution that's saying like, hey, it's not me, it's not me through a mediator, right? But it's Christ himself says that you are forgiven um, if you repent of your sins and you trust in me. Um, and then we also see the importance of this grace is um, dispensed specifically in the church, right? It's not to say that you can't repent outside of the church, but it's, it's the important role of the church to call people to repentance, through preaching, and we see that in the last section here where it says the constant preaching of repentance is necessary. So, again, something to be thankful for that in our church, and, and we would say in faithful gospel preaching, that you need to preach the law before you preach the gospel, right? That you can't have the gospel without the true knowledge of the law. Um, so, we'll end with that somewhat on time. Uh, let me uh, pray, and then we will uh, get to the service. Father, thank you for um, reminding us once again this morning that if we come um, humble and repentant before you, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins, that, Lord, that you, you have promised, even in, in um, the Lord's Prayer, that you will forgive our debts. So, Lord, I ask that you would um, do that this morning, that you would give us repentant hearts that search out particular sins, not just generic sins, but particular sins, 
um, that we might be absolved and, and that we might be forgiven and reminded of that grace in the gospel uh, this morning. So thank you for that blessing and that gift, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.